All right, once again, if you have your Bibles, please open them up. We're ready for James chapter 4 today. Let's begin in um, verse number 7, where we left off last week. Really, um, one of the things that was the heart of the message last week, one of the things that I'm very passionate about is um, verse 7 and what it says. I really do believe that it's, it's, it's one of the, the cruxes of the entire Bible and what we believe that Jesus came to teach. I believe that James's brother here, or Jesus's brother James, who wrote this book, who would have grown up, who would have lived in the same bedroom as Jesus, slept in the same bed. James was not a believer, as you know. We've been studying this together. He didn't believe in Jesus. In, Mark, in Mark's gospel, some of Jesus' siblings show up, and, and they think he's crazy, and they're trying to rescue him from a situation as Jesus is there ministering, and his siblings show up to like take him to the insane asylum because they believe that he's crazy. And it doesn't tell us by name. But I'm pretty sure James, the author of this book, is one of the ones that showed up on that day in Jesus's ministry and said, guys, I'm sorry, my brother's a little crazy and we're here to help him. And they tried to pull Jesus away from this situation and recorded in Mark's gospel. And later, after Jesus rose from the grave, he appeared to his brother. And the life of James, the author of this epistle, was so radically changed. He became known as old camel knees in the church because he had a reputation to enter the temple and spend 8, 10, 12 hours a day praying. And we often say that maybe he felt some regret and some remorse that he wasted 30 years of sleeping in the same bedroom with God. Anybody ever do that? Even the disciples didn't get to sleep 30 years in the same bedroom as God. But, and so he didn't want to waste any more time. And so James, who, who is a do-do-do book, you know, we say that we don't, and then in church, right, that really what we believe the New Testament teaches in a nutshell, and if I could simplify what I believe the gospel is into a short phrase, it's, it's relationship with God. What, you know, if you walked in the door today, and if I was standing at the door as you walked in, and I said to each of you, what is Christianity? What would be your answer? Some of you would, would you know, come up with some ideas and some things, but how many of you, if I asked the question, what is Christianity. What is it to be a Christian? How many of you would say that relationship with Jesus? Amen? Because that is the essence of Christianity. It's relationship with Jesus. That's, that's what my heart, my conviction, my life is all about. It's what it says, what I believe. I understand and I read in the gospel that, that Jesus wants relationship with every one of us. And we don't focus on do, do, do. We say that religion is do, do, do. You have to tithe. You have to go to church. You have to do this. You have to do that to please God. It's man reaching up, trying to please God. But the Bible says man can't please God. The Bible says that God can't be any more or less pleased with you. God can't love you any more or less because you're his child and he loves you. And he cares for you and he's pleased with you. And we don't do, do, do. Jesus done, done, done. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus rose again. Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. And we have a God who's alive. Jesus said to some folks one time, he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he said, I'm not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, meaning that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive and in heaven, and Jesus was still their God. We have a living God who's in heaven, and, and it's relationship with Jesus now, James, his brother, tells us um, that, that we have to be in our faith, that it's not faith, um, you know, that, that it's not only about your faith. It's not only about your works, but it's faith that works. And James says, if you say you have faith, then there'll obviously be works to prove it. 
Now, again, so many people get this idea twisted and they get the cart before the horse and they believe that our works drives our faith. But exactly, it's exactly the opposite. Our faith drives our works, meaning you focus first on your faith, first on your relationship with Jesus, first on the word of God. And as you get to know Jesus and as you begin to hear the voice of God and develop relationship with God, God begins to put things on your plate that he wants you to do for him, certain works. And then James just tells you and I, you ready? Hopefully you guys have learned something in the last five weeks. Let's try. Faith without works is? Faith without works is? Faith without works is? I said that three times because James wrote it three times, okay? So that came from James. And he, he said it three times here in, in this book for emphasis so that we would remember. And, and James just, I don't know if this is, is this bad to say a spade a spade? Is that that's a bad expression? Is that okay? James just called a spade a spade. He didn't, he didn't mess around. He just told it like it was. And he said, listen, if you say you're a believer in Jesus, there'll be some works to prove it. There'll be evidence in your life to support what you say. And so James here now, but then he says you have to um, tame the tongue. You have to count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Um, certain things that he wants us to do, do, do. But then he brings it all to um, really ahead. Really, really the, the thing that drives everything that James is teaching. In verse number eight, seven, and he says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee for you. And then in verse eight is the crux. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. How close do you guys want to be to God? How, how close do you think? Let me ask you. Who, is there anybody in, in maybe in the Christian world? Do you guys follow it at all? Is there anybody you envy? Is there anybody you say, man, wow, that, that, that person is, is really cool, or that person is, is really used of God. I wish I was um, used or touched of God in that way. Maybe that person's not alive today. Maybe that person's a Bible character. Maybe you look at Elijah, who, who, who James is going to bring out. Maybe you see King David or... The Apostle Paul, or maybe you think of somebody recently, Billy Graham, or Chuck Smith, or Charles Swindoll, or somebody that's, that's just doing big things for Jesus, Greg Laurie today in his crusade. And, and, and you think, man, I would love to be used of God that way. I'd, I'd love for my life to be in God's hands that God could put fruit and use my life in a mighty way. Anybody in here? Do you want to be used by God? Do you want God to use your life? Do you want, do you want God to have every part of your life? Who, who, who gets to decide how much of your life God is going to use? God doesn't decide, you guys. What do you mean God doesn't decide? God doesn't decide how much. God, God, God has already decided. Let's put it that way. God wants to use 100% of your life, and he wants to make every one of you as, as useful as as Billy Graham, as Greg Laurie, as, as any other. And not that we're all called to preach to millions in live audience. Because maybe your call is a person of prayer, a person of service, or a person of worship. But for God to fully get a hold of your life, God wants every part of every one of you. And how much of your life God uses depends upon you, not upon him. Because he's given you such an open invitation to come into his presence and to, to dine with him and, and to sup with him and to relate with him. You know, this chapter is going to end in chapter five, the whole end of this chapter. He's going to use an example of one of the guys in the Bible that was used so powerfully that every one of us could have a little bit of gift envy. A guy named Elijah. Elijah, James is going to say in the end of this chapter, he was an ordinary guy just like you. And the King James Version says, Elijah was a man of like passions. What does that mean? 
That means that Elijah didn't, wasn't born with some super mutant God gene. Like he didn't just, because he was born with this mutant God gene, now God was able to really get his life and use his life in powerful ways. This is the kind of Elijah had. Elijah was down by the lake one day. And, and a friend of his was, was cutting wood, and, and the axe broke, and the head of the axe flew out into the lake and landed in the water. And the guy was whining and crying, and he's like, Elijah, I borrowed that axe. It wasn't even mine. I broke it. It's out in the head. i got to pay this guy. And Elijah's like t- just tired of hearing the guy whine. And he says, he raises the axe head to the top of the water, and he says, go get the axe. And he walks out the water, and the guy is able to pick up his axe. Now, how many of you guys just, for fun, make axe heads float to the top of the water? <laughs> Only on Wednesday. But, but it took a certain amount of faith and, and a connection to God that he had. And, and then James is going to tell us men like Elisha and Elijah, they, they're men of like passions. They're just like you and I. That we have that same opportunity to have intimacy and devotion with God. James says, draw near to me and I will draw. James says, for you to draw near to God and God will draw near to you. We talked about last week, the Bible, Jesus said, for some of you in here, he's going to give you 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold blessing. What, what blessing do you want in your life of God? Who decides? Again, you decide. You decide how close to God you want to be, and the invitation is open to all of you. And then in um, verse number 10, he says, um, as we where we really left off last week, he says, humble yourselves. That was last week's sermon. This is this week's sermon now. Humble yourselves in the, in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, one of the, one of the biblical um, instructions for you and I is, is a warning against pride. Pride is of the devil. For Christian folks, we don't want to be prideful people. We don't want to be a people that are full of lots of pride. Okay, we talked about last week there's a difference between certain things that we're proud of in life and, and a pride that's a sin. And in order to deal with the pride that's in your life and my life, God says for you and me, he says to humble yourself. Now, God will humble you, but I, I, want, to, I want to encourage you. It's much easier if you humble yourself. Humble yourself before the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. You know, I, I learned this lesson the hard way. I was, um, you know, in, in, I was, you know, athletic growing up a little bit, and I wasn't like collegiate athlete or nothing, but I could hold my own in men's league. We won a couple uh, county championships and some three-on-three basketball tournaments, and uh, we, we, we had a team from the church that would play on the Marine base in 29 Palms, and we went out to 29 Palms and won a couple of their uh, men's league basketball tournaments with our church team. And so, you know, we're competing with Marines, and it's a pretty big accomplishment. We were, we were all right as a team. But we were in the church softball um, championship game, and this was a big deal. Like, all the different churches competed, and it was our team versus the other team. We had played all season, and so the game's getting ready to start, and I'm starting on shortstop on the, in the championship game. There's like seven different churches that showed up to watch the championship game. And, you know, I'm standing on shortstop, feeling pretty good about myself, you know, and I'm like, Lord, just humble me today, you know. Let me be humble out here and, um, you know, not, not show off too bad and hit too many home runs. And, you know, just, just, help, just humble me, Lord. You talk about the most embarrassing day of my life ever. I'm serious. And I'm not like, again, I'm not great, but I could catch a softball. That day, I, I like took one off the eye. Regular grounders would come to me and, and like it would hit my glove and I'd go to chase it. I'd kick it into the outfield. True story. I picked the ball up that I kicked and had to chase. I turned to first to try to throw it. It goes over the infield fence and hits a girl in the neck. 
And I'm like, this is my like the fifth inning. And finally, I'm like, okay, Lord, um, don't humble me anymore. I was so embarrassed. Oh, my gosh. I looked like the biggest idiot in the world. And I'm like, people are like, how in the world did this guy play shortstop on the championship team? Like, but couldn't catch a ball, throw a ball, hit a ball to save my life. And, and after that point, I said to the Lord, okay, Lord, I'm never going to ask you again to humble me. I'm going to humble myself. So, so I think in the future what I'm going to do is when I show up, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to try to keep my own heart humble the best I can so that the Lord doesn't have to humble me. And he will. He will humble you. Some people, you know, I don't think it's wrong. If you want to ask God's help for humility, he'll give it to you. You may not like it, but he will give it to you. But God wants you to stay humble. Amen? And then he says um, in verse number 11, none of us struggle with this. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? So there's one lawgiver who's able to save and to destroy. Who's the lawgiver who's able to save and to destroy? Jesus, right? There's only one. You know, we we talk about the idea of having pride and being prideful. You know, one of the things you can remind yourself is that you don't have a heaven to bring people to. You don't have a hell to send people to. What do you have to be prideful about? I don't have a kingdom. I don't have in here. He says there is one lawgiver who has a reward and a punishment, and it's Jesus, and that we don't want to um, be full of pride. And then it says in verse 13, Now come you who say today and tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor and appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this and that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Back to verse 13. Today and tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend there and buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen. Look at your neighbor and say, I don't know what will happen. How many of you guys know what's going to happen tomorrow? Nobody. Okay. How many of you guys believe God knows what's going to happen tomorrow, right? So, so are you guys reminded? I think when I read this instantly, I'm reminded of the um, of the story in Luke. If you want to turn there with me, it's in Luke chapter 12. If not, I'll be right back. In Luke chapter 12, in verse 16, Jesus was speaking a parable, and he said to them, "A certain rich man yielded plentiful, and he thought within himself, saying, Listen to all the eyes in this parable that Jesus thought of this rich man.'" What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? And so he said, I will do this and I will pull down my barns and I will build greater. And there I will store all my crops and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for yourself. Many made up, laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this very night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up the treasure for himself. Is he not rich toward God? So God is saying, listen, we don't know who, um, what's going to happen today, tomorrow. We don't know when the lights are going to go off in church, when they're going to stay on. We, we just don't know these things. Like you can't be sure you can read your Bible in 30 seconds. Let me Let me be honest with you guys. Let me try to just talk to you for a minute about something that I think is super important and super valuable. 
Um, one of the things, and, and again, I'm trying not to, we're talking about pride in the same issue. I'm trying not to be boastful, but um, th- there is something I think God has worked really well in Lydia and I's life over the years that, that I'm super thankful for. And, and it's been this issue. And, and, and really, as Lydia and I first got married, and even when we got married, now I was in Bible college, Lydia was in high school when we met. She was a junior in high school, and I was a freshman in the college at, on the same campus in the same area. And, um, and then beginning of her senior year, we started to date. And there were some people that were like, you know, this guy's robbing the cradle. And, you know, I tell people that if Lydia turned out bad, it's half my fault because I helped raise her, you know. But um, I'm actually six years older than she is. So uh, five and a half, technically, is close to six, five and three quarters. Um, I got lost. I was like, what am I talking about? Yeah. So even in that, even even in that, there was a little bit of a, a, a struggle or decision about what did we want or what did we feel like God was doing. And when Lydia and I got, got first got married, I really feel like the decision was based on only one factor. What is God's will for her life? What is God's will for my life? And as we've, we've developed a life together as, uh, as pastor and pastor's wives, and, you know, her dad's a senior pastor at the church where, where we came from, and um, one of the things that we've always done is we've, we've only placed one item on the scale of, de- of decision. When we, when we had to come and move to Utah six years ago, it was, a, it was a big decision for us. Now, we think that we'll do this in the big decisions, but I'd like to think that even in, in, in life we do these in the smaller decisions and in everyday decisions. But when Lydia and I had to make a decision, if we felt God was calling us to come to Utah and move to Utah, when we got out our scale, we didn't, we didn't have a pro and con scale. Now, I know we use pros and cons when we make decisions, right? This job or that job. Should I take this job, the money, the raise, the location, the travel? And, we're, you know, should I live in this city or that city? Should I do this thing or that thing? And I understand we consider those things. But ultimately, we never want to put any of those things on our scale of decision. There's only one thing that should ever go on your scale, and what is that? The will of God. What is God's will for your life? Should I take the job? Some people ask me all the time, Pastor, I, I have this opportunity to get a promotion at work. And I don't know if I really want that. It will be the manager. It will be more responsibility. And I, I want you to pray for me and, and, and ask God for wisdom and what I should do. Such a wise thing. And I never pray, Lord, give them the promotion. Lord, give them the raise. We always pray, Lord, if, if it's your will, then you would open this door. Why? Because God knows what's going to happen in, in a week, in a day, in five years, where you're going to be, what's going to happen, and you don't. And listen, you can beg and you can, you can cry and you can plead with God to give you something that you want, and he may give it to you because you've asked. But now it's going to cause you trouble, and now you're going to have to maintain the thing that you've obtained, and that's more trouble than it would have been to not have it. And, and you're better off to know that you have a good, good father in heaven who loves you, and he will give you the absolute best if you'll trust him. You can beg him for what your will is and what you want. And, and I don't know why a, a sovereign God, but he does. And biblically, he does multiple times. He gives in to people's will when it's not the best thing for them. There's a king in the Old Testament. And he was a good king. And the prophet came to him according to the word of the Lord. And he said that, that your life is going to end at a certain time soon. That God is, is calling you home. And this certain king said, I, I, I don't want to die. I'm not ready. Go ask God for more time, more years. And the prophet came back and said, God said, no, it's time for you to come home. And the prophet continued to beg. And can, or the king continued to ask for more years. And God gave him 10 more years, the worst 10 years of his life. 
miserable, turned his heart against God. All kinds of miserable things happened in the last 10 years, but God allowed it. Our best prayer is, God, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And when we make decisions, we make decisions based on one factor. What is that? Everybody, come on, the will of God. What do we make decisions based on? Now, you can, you can make them based on the will of the person in the mirror. God, I really want that woman. God, I really want that relationship. God, I really want that man. And then in five years, God, why'd you give me that man? He stinks. God, why'd you give me that woman? Like, you don't know. <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen. Lydia and I just celebrated 21 years of marriage this week, so thank you. We celebrated. We went and saw John Christ on uh, John Christ on uh, at the comedy show on Friday night. It was it was so much fun. He's so funny. Um, Brian went on Saturday night. He said, "Don't try to steal his jokes. I'll dime you out." I went Saturday night. So if you're up there and you're preaching, you're trying to tell John's jokes. I'll tell everybody you stole them from John from his concert. But we 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 had such a good time. So re- really back to because I don't want to, and then we'll move on. But I don't want to let it go. Um. What I wanted to encourage us again, I hope we heard this. The will of God. What is the will of God for your life? What, is, what does God want for your life? He knows. So seek the will of God in your life. And listen, God wants to give you what's best for you. How many of you guys got kids? Do you guys want what's best for your kids? Do you really want to give them good gifts, things that will bless them and benefit them, things that will put them in a good direction, things that will, will set them up for success? God wants to know how much more does the Heavenly Father want to do that for you is what Jesus said. So, so don't be afraid to end every one of your prayers. And we'll be such a, a greater church and a greater people. If, and, and listen, it's not, it's not wrong to ask. James already told us, you have not because you ask not. If you want something, ask for it. I don't care what it is. You want a new Cadillac, ask God. God, I want a new Cadillac. James says you ask not because you have not. Or you have not because you ask not. And you have not, because when you ask, you ask amiss that you might spend it on your own pleasure. There's nothing wrong with asking. But when he tells you, no, you can't have a Cadillac, don't whine. Just say, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And and maybe God's will for you is to have something. He told King David, King David had, you know, just in a heartbreaking thing. I shared this a couple weeks ago. God says to King David, and and, and we don't get the inflection in God's voice when, um, when we read it off a page, but I'm sure it was brokenhearted. And, and, and David had sinned against the Lord, and God said, David, I've given you all this. And if it wasn't enough, I would have given you more. God, God will give you what you want, and if it wasn't enough, he said, I'll give you more. So he doesn't want to withhold anything from you. But as James is telling us, you never know what tomorrow holds, so leave it in God's hands. And then um, we, we went to... Uh, we went to the men's retreat, or yeah, the pastor's conference, and we brought all the guys, and we're on our way home, and Jay was, uh, Jay here was, um, he was telling the guys about some plans he had or doing something, and, and then he kind of, I don't know if he was thinking of this verse in James, and, and he kind of caught himself mid-sentence, and he said, oh, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, I'm going to do such and such. Oh my gosh, that he caught so much heck the rest of the trip. That guy couldn't say anything without us saying, if the Lord wills, brother, if it's the Lord's will. Jay's like, hey, I got to go to the bathroom. If the Lord wills, if it's the Lord's will, if it's the Lord's will, brother, go, you know. But his heart was right, you know. Unfortunately, he was just with a bunch of rough guys that, that weren't going to let him get away with it. But, you know, that, that really is the reality. You, you, you don't necessarily, God doesn't, God's not against us planning. God wants us to plan. 
but he wants us to plan with him in mind. He wants to plan our lives around him. And, and so, you know, if you're a business person, and, and James actually here, and we're going to get into it, he's going to address it um, in the next verse, where he's directly talking to, to people of, of business ventures, people of wealth, people who are, and that's what most of us are, you know, at some point in your life, in your career somewhere, that's a, there's a capital venture that you're, you're trying to gain, you're trying to make, and, and there's, that's all okay. But God just wants you to do it in such a way that you keep him first, that you involve him in your decisions, that it's okay to plan, but plan around God. All right, I had to keep moving. I said I had to keep moving to finish. So, um, but I can't. First Timothy in chapter six. I just want to say one thing. Actually, let's go to, uh, let's go back to James for a second and then we'll pick that up. Verse 17 says, therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, the last verse in chapter 14, um, it is sin. Now, again, I want to be brief on this point, but I want you guys to know this biblically. There's a difference between sins of omission and sins of commission. You guys know the difference? A sin of commission is a sin that you commit. You have anger, you have lust, you, you know, you curse, you, you lie, you steal, you've committed a sin. Okay, you get drunk, you've committed a sin. But a sin of omission is, is, is the same, it's a sin, a sin is a sin, but it's when God tells you to do something that you don't do. For him to knows to do good and does it not, it's sin. There was a pastor who um, had a couple in his church, and the woman had a miscarriage, and she was pregnant again, and they were getting ready to have a baby. And after church, the, the, the Lord told him by the Holy Spirit to go to this person and give him a word and say, the Lord Jesus loves you, and everything's going to be okay. And the pastor was disobedient. He said, oh, that's not from you, Lord, and that gets me outside my comfort zone, and they're going to think I'm a whack job if I go up to them and tell them that, and something's wrong with this baby. The next Wednesday, the, the, the couple comes to church and the baby, the baby was diagnosed with spinal bifida and was going to be born with some, some major illnesses. Turns out the baby was born perfectly healthy and fine and is in their school today. And then the pastor had to go back to him and they went through all kinds of trouble and turmoil and all kinds of stress because of the doctor diagnosis, because the, the disobedient um, disobedience of the pastor did not give him the word. And, and sure, it would have been easy to go back after the baby was born healthy and say, oh, uh, I was supposed to tell you, and God wanted me to tell you that Jesus loves you and everything's going to be okay. Oh, well, that information would have been good about four months ago when we were going through heck, knowing that God was going was to walk us through this. And so that's a sin of omission. He was called to do something. How many of you guys, God has put something on your heart and you're not doing it? What, what has God told you to do? Maybe it's something around here. Maybe you're supposed to be serving in a ministry here and you feel called and you feel led and you just haven't stepped out and stepped up. Now, we, we recognize sins of, of, of commission, but we ignore sometimes sins of omission, and that's what James is dealing with here. So if you know to do good and you do it not, it's the same as, as committing a sin. You know, you guys know my past. You know my testimony, most of you. And some of you might think I spent lots of days in jail, but I actually didn't. I actually have one time I spent like eight hours in jail in my life, and it was after I was in Bible college. <laughs> True story. I was a Bible college student. I went through all that growing up in L.A. and never, never saw the inside of a jail. Never saw the. Well, I did see the backside of a cop car, but he took me home, not to, not to jail. Um, it's for a bike ticket, bicycle ticket when I was riding around the streets. Um, so I, I'm driving in the church vehicle. I'm coming up visiting Lydia. She's going to have to take her SATs the next day. It's a Friday night. Next morning, she's going to take her SATs on a Saturday. And, you know, I don't know if you guys know anything about my wife's testimony, but she's like, she's wicked smart. 
She she graduated high school and college. Uh, what's the top magna cum? I always forget it because I'm not the smartest. Summa cum laude. I always say magna. She's like summa. She's my wife's magna cum laude. No, I'm not. I'm summa. No, I'm just kidding. Summa cum laude. One B her whole life, entire life. So she's pretty smart, you know, book smart, and she. Uh, um, so she's got to take her SATs the next day. I'm at her house Friday night, and so I take the church vehicle and I'm leaving, and I get to the edge of her of her street and clear as day. And God doesn't speak this clear to me all the time, but this was pretty clear. He told me to turn around and go back. And I was supposed to stay that night. And I'm like, ah, oh, Lord, I'm not supposed to stay. Like, that's not right. And he told me, no, turn around, go back. And I, and I, and I sat there at the, at, the, at the curb, and I knew that, not the curb, at the end of the drive, and I knew, it was, I knew the Holy Spirit was speaking to me super clear. Turn around and go back. I was embarrassed. I didn't. So anyways, I, I, it was about a 30-minute drive where I had to go where the Bible College campus was from Lydia's house. And so I took off by myself well I get pulled over on the way and when I was like 17 my friends and I went to Needles California and I think we're on our way to Laughlin we got pulled over and I got a ticket for something stupid when Needles like four years ago that turned into a warrant and this guy found it I'd been pulled over before I had a valid driver's license I was good and I don't know it's never been a problem this guy finds this old warrant he takes me to jail (laughs) so I gotta call Pastor Gerald and I'm in the church vehicle to come, and I'm in Bible college, to come bail me out of jail. And they didn't kick me out of Bible college. And he still let me marry his daughter. <laughs> so, sin of omission. I knew God told me to turn around. He was trying to help me avoid some trouble that, that I wasn't supposed to be in. And I, and I ignored that voice of the Holy Spirit. And so, don't, don't, that's a lesson, too. And I, I don't know, maybe part of me uh, uh, had to learn that lesson. Maybe I should sit down. I'm kicking stuff. I'm dropping stuff. I'm... I'll sit down for a minute. Um, all right, let's look at chapter 5. we got 12 minutes. We're going to do it. It says, come now, you rich. Is that talking to anybody in here? <laughs> come now, you rich. Now, okay, you, somebody said all of us because they're thinking spiritual riches. But this is not talking about spiritual riches. This is talking about rich people, people in there that are rich. Let me tell you something about what the Bible says. And um, when Paul is talking to Timothy um, in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17, This is what Paul says about the rich in the church. Paul says, Timothy, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So Paul commands um, Timothy in a commandment, in a military term, to command those who are in church to be generous. Command those who are wealthy in church and can afford it to be generous to the work of God. And then then James here is just going to deal with it head on. He's going to deal with really a simple Bible truth. The Bible says that the, and it can get misconstrued, but the Bible says that the love of money is the root of, okay, it's not the root of all evil. Let's let's qualify this. Be careful. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, is, is money the root of all evil? People sometimes misquote it that way. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And here's the danger. Jesus said you can't serve both God and money. You can't serve both God and mammon. You'll love one and hate the other. Money makes a great servant and a terrible master. And, and the reality is your money can master your life. You remember the rich young ruler? You know what it says? The rich young ruler in Mark's gospel, he came running and he knelt down at the feet of Jesus. I read, when I read it again today, uh, the, and I, I read it a million times, but the part where, where the rich young ruler, have you guys pictured Jesus talking to the rich young ruler and the rich young ruler's on his knees? 
And I, and I just picked that, that little detail up this morning. The rich young, young ruler, he comes and he falls down on his knees and he says, good master, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, you know, do good and love the poor and give. And, and he says, obey your mother and father and obey the commandments. And the rich young ruler, the young man says, Jesus, I've done all of these since my youth. And the Bible says this, and Jesus loved him. He really was a good kid. He was a good kid. But Jesus recognized an issue in his heart, that his money mastered him, that he, that, that he was wealthy and that, that he couldn't give up those things. And so for Jesus to identify an issue in his heart that needed to be surrendered, because Jesus won't take a 90% surrender of your life. You have to surrender every part of your life to God, for God to accept the surrender that you offer. You can't come and, and, and offer half. And the young man was offering most, but there was a part of his life. And Jesus, because he was God, could look into the man's heart and he could see the issue. And he said, go and sell everything you own and, and give it to the poor. And it says that the rich young ruler went away sad because he had many possessions. And he was unwilling because his possessions owned to him. He didn't own his possessions. And so James is going to deal with the, the, the rich. And the, the issue of money is not that, that you know, what's, what's interesting is that God, some of the biggest main people that God uses in the Bible were super wealthy people. Jesus had many wealthy friends. So we don't necessarily see any prohibitions in the Bible against us being wealthy. Unless the wealth dominates you. Unless you become a slave to that wealth. And it's, it's a danger. And what happens is if you become too wealthy, when you have a problem in life, money can solve a lot of problems. And, and you don't necessarily, when you're poor... And, and you don't know where your next meal is going to come to from. You pray. You seek God. You don't know how to fix your problems. You have to rely upon God. When you just got so much money that you don't know how to deal with it, then you, it's harder to trust the Lord. But God has given the, the, the generous, the rich um, gifts of generosity. We've seen it. We've seen it in our church here. Miraculously, we've seen generous um, people in this church. And everything that we have is because of the generosity of not, not only the rich, but of all of us giving and, and being a part and collecting. You know, while, while we're talking about it, we've been, I've been telling you guys that we've been trying to save for our HVAC system. Now, it's kind of, it's very nice in here this morning, but it's not hot outside. And we've been nervous that we're not going to make it. Well, we have some summer expenses every year. Fourth um, of July is, is a big deal, that big outreach that we do. And we, we spend money on it every year. But we, we have been trying to be very diligent um, to only spend what we have to spend to get through each week and each month in order to save. We saved about half right now of what we need for our HVAC, but we're still, and we have now, but now we have the 4th of July expenses coming up um, where we're going to um, need to invest in the float and um, just the events, T-shirts, different things that we do each year, um, the food, the barbecue, the outreach, those kind of things that we spend on the 4th of July. And there's just some things over the summer that are coming up. I did want to throw out an opportunity if, um, in, in, uh, in vain with, with 1 Timothy 6.17, for the rich among you command them to give, that um, if you would like to help with the HVAC. Now, the, the other part of me, you guys, and, and I haven't told my wife this yet, so don't tell her, but um, if we can get through the summer the way we are, we'll be okay. We just don't know. You know, if, if, the, if the way the air is now, we're definitely under service. We're, you know, they, they, we have a five-ton unit that does this entire four spot. They want to put a 12-ton unit to do, or 15-ton unit is what the calcs came back to do, three of the four. So if you count one, two, three, four, right now we're running that on five, five-ton unit. The calcs come back at a 15-ton unit for three of the four. So we're anticipating when it gets hot, we're going we're gonna to get a little bit warm. So we need some help. We're, we're trying our best to save for that. If you want to help with the HVAC, 
um, let me know. Let Brian know. Brian, by the way, some of you may know this not, but Brian, who runs our sound booth, is on the board. He's one of our, our board members. He's one of the liaisons for our church. So if you ever need to talk to somebody or, or you get, want some information or you want to whatever, Brian is your guy to go to for that. So um, you can see Brian or, or let me know or somebody know if you want to be a part of that or help with that. Amen? Are you guys motivated to give or do I need to preach more? All right. So um, let's go. Let's go back to James. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your ministries, miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Hey, listen, let me, let me just be careful. I want to I want to be careful. Um, when, when I say something like that, honestly, I don't I don't want to put any undue pressure on anybody. I do feel like it is my call and I believe it's biblical to present opportunities to you. So that's an opportunity, but don't respond ever out of obligation. If you feel the Holy Spirit has spoke to your heart on a specific issue on those things, then we've already talked about sins of omission. So just be obedient to what it is God's put on your heart. In the area of giving in our church, we try to be careful. Jay used the term 10% today. A 10% is a is an Old Testament biblical term for tithing. You will rarely, if ever, hear me use the term 10%. I'm not against it. I personally live by it, but I don't. I, it's not legalistic. 10% is not a New Testament legalistic number that we we that I could prove to you biblically that a tithe is 10% in the New Testament. The New Testament from the very simple says each one let each one determine in his heart what he wants to give to the Lord and only give that which you can give cheerfully. Okay? Don't give begrudgingly. So give give as God calls you and you know my thing is just ask God, talk to God. Don't talk to me about what you're supposed to give. Talk to God because I know if you talk to me I'll tell you a lot less than what God'll tell you. So talk to God and find out what he puts in your heart and then just be obedient to what it is that God tells you to do. Amen? Simple enough? All right. Um, in verse number, let's go. Hey, we're going to skip down just a little bit if you guys don't mind. This, this kind of covered that section just talking about it. You guys can read through it. Let's go to verse 7. It says, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord and see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the earthly and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Hey, verse 8, just real quick. Highlight it, underline it. You know, I, I've told you guys a million times. The Bible in, in the New Testament, if there's one thing that we cannot argue about, there's one thing that is clear with every writer, every, every page, every part of the New Testament, is that Jesus is coming back. Okay? I don't want us to ever, ever doubt that, argue that. That's just... If you take the New Testament and you hand it to a complete stranger who knows nothing and you say, read the New Testament as a child, there's absolutely one conclusion that you've come up to that you don't need any scholars or any pastors or anybody to, to tell you. If you just read the New Testament, you'll realize the same Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament, who was born in a manger, who lived a sinless life, who died, rose again, ascended to heaven, is coming back. Jesus is absolutely coming back. In verse 9 it says, oh, another one none of us ever struggle with. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brethren. You guys never do that, huh? Never, we never grumble. Brethren, lest you be condemned, behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. What do we do with the prophets of the Old Testament? How do we use them? Verse 10. That's examples for us. Why did Job's life have to go through misery? Somebody say, thank you, Job. 
Come on, y'all. Thank you, Job. He deserves it. Everybody. Thank you, Job. Do you know why Job went through hell? So you could learn as an example. You know, we say we tease and we say, God, God, God and you got to read Job chapter 1. Pretty simple. One chapter. The other 39 you could just skip and then go to the end. But it's just his friends show up and talk trash for 39 chapters. And then God shows up in chapter 40 and, and says, uh, hey, for the last 39 chapter, Job, your friends are idiots. Tell them to shut up. I'm here now, and I'm going to tell you what's really going on. That's, that's how the book of Job goes. But in chapter 1, there's this scene in heaven that gives us this kind of trippy, like, like idea where God and Satan are kind of like debating on, on, on what Satan is allowed to do to Job. And, and God says, okay, yeah. Jo- Satan says to God, hey, Job only serves you because you've blessed him. Look at all he has. If I take that away from him, if you take that away from him, he'll curse you to your face. He won't serve God anymore. And God says, all right, go check it out. He says, but don't touch his life. Anything up to killing him. So Satan, the first day, kills 10 of Job's kids. Think about it, right? And then, and then all of his animals, which is, which is all his money in the bank. So his bank accounts are wiped out. His kids are dead. His houses are destroyed. And then he starts to get sicknesses and boils. And he's in so much pain. He's sitting on his porch and he's breaking pottery at his house because so he could get the sharp shards of the pottery and scraping the boils and putting ashes on himself because he's in so much pain. And his wife shows up. Now, she's the only one Satan wouldn't kill because <laughs> she was helping him. So she shows up and she's like, Job, curse God and die. This is miserable. Look what happened to you. Now, I, I, we give Job's wife a hard time, but I also am gracious to her, right? She lost 10 kids in one night. But in, in Job's story, at the end of his life, God gave him back everything and then some. And Job had the most amazing testimony because through it all, Job never cursed God nor sinned, the Bible says, multiple times. Job said, blessed is the Lord. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. I will bless the name of the Lord. And so here um, James says, hey, we have these examples. Take these guys as examples to live by. Be encouraged by them. Know that God is in control. God, God is taking care of you. And verse 10, we have tons of Old Testament examples, so we don't have to. Verse 11 says, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end, indeed, by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear by either heaven nor by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall into judgment. Verse number 12 says, above all. And that kind of trips me out. James has already said a bunch of stuff. He's already given us a a huge admonition, and now he thinks this is the most important thing. From the voice of James, he says, above all, be people of integrity. Don't swear. Let your yes be no, yes, your no be no. What does that mean? That means that you're a person of integrity. You know anybody that, that says, oh, I swear to God, man, I swear to God. No, you don't. You're, you, I swear, I swear, I swear. The more times you tell me I swear, I swear, I swear, the less I trust you. The more I know you're lying when you're trying to convince me what you're saying is true. Don't be that person, the Bible says. Jesus said the same thing. James is just picking up on it here, what Jesus taught and repeating it. It means that when your yes be yes and your no be no, it means when somebody asks you a question, when somebody gives you a, you know, you, you say yes, and if it's yes, you mean it. And if they don't believe you, you don't swear by it. You don't have to continue to try to prove it out. You just let your yes be yes, your no be no. What happens if you do that, if you're that type of person? Over a period of time, people will see that you're a person of your word, and, and they'll know they can trust you. It takes time. It'll build integrity in your life. 
But don't be, don't be a person who is, is constantly trying to have to prove who you are. Just, just be honest. But if, if you lie to people, then you lose that yes is yes and no is no. So you tell the truth. And whether they believe you or not, you don't trip. That's on them. You're just going to continue to do what's right. Tell the truth. And eventually, your character will speak for itself. Amen? And then he says, um, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Listen, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So this thing I'm kicking around up here, this is anointing oil from Israel. The reason why I have this sitting here and that sitting there is because of this verse here in the book of James. Um, the, The Bible says, if you're sick to come up, let him ask that the elders pray for him, anoint him with oil, and then look what it says, who heals him? The prayer of faith and the prayer of faith will save him and the Lord will raise him up. Okay, this this is this is olive oil from Israel. But I'm often kind of jesting and, and joking that, you know, sometimes I'll say, oh, it's just oil. It's on sale at Walmart. But because there's no medicinal purposes in the oil. But it is in obedience to God's word. And oftentimes it's a place. It's a point to release your, your faith point of contact that releases your faith. If I anoint you with oil, I'll, I'll make the sign of the cross and I'll say in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and I'll tell you that when you smell the oil on your forehead, when you feel it on your forehead, that it's a constant reminder for you that God's Holy Spirit is with you and able to heal you and able to touch your life. And maybe that will release your faith. Maybe you'll believe God for a healing. Maybe I'll believe God for a healing and, and it's the person who prays who receives the healing. You know, it's always different in the Bible. It's never always just the same formula. God does a healing so many different ways in the Bible. But in obedience to God's word, we do this regularly. Now, I want to tell you, in verse 14, you've got you to catch this. Who's, who's the responsibility on to um, let me know that you need prayer or the elders know? Is anyone sick among you? Let him call. Who's him? The sick person. You know what I get sometimes? Oh, my! I was sick and nobody from the church came and visited me. That's a terrible church. You're unfriendly. And I say, did you tell somebody you were sick? Because I don't have ESPN. I mean ESP. Um, I, I, I like SportsCenter, but I, I don't know when you're sick and when you're not. But listen, if you call the church, if you notify me, you notify the elders, and you request prayer, now the responsibility is on us to make good on it. And you're also invited every Sunday to come up. And, and sometimes I'll ask you, can I anoint, if you ask me to pray for the sick, sometimes I'll ask you, um, can I anoint you with oil? Some people react differently, you know, a little strange, but that's okay. It's biblical. But you, you're always, I want to tell you, you always have the invitation in our church to request to be anointed with oil because it's biblical. And if you request to be anointed with oil, normally what I'll do is, is I will ask Brian, I'll ask Lydia, I'll ask Pat, I'll ask Jay, or any of the elders or leaders, Mike are here, I'll invite them to come up and lay hands on you and pray for you because it's in obedience to what this says. Let the elders come up and lay hands on you and pray for you. And oftentimes I think it's good when we pray in a group because if God does do a healing, not a one of us can feel like, oh, I'm the healer guy, you know, like we all prayed. Who knows? It wasn't my faith. I, you know, Mike was the one who had the faith that God used. And, and there's, there's a humility in a group that prays. And there's also just an obedience to God's word and what it says here. So 
I think that's the skinny, but um, definitely know you have that invitation and that you should, it will anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another. Okay, let's be careful with verse 16 and we're almost done, you guys. Confess your trespasses to one another. What does that mean? Are you supposed to tell somebody all of your sins? Are you supposed to tell another brother or sister in the church? Yeah, well, it says here, confess all your sins one to another, doesn't it? Confess your trespasses. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another. There was three pastors who were, were kind of, um, they got together and they wanted to, to use this, this verse and confess their sins to one another. And the first pastor said in confidence to the other two, he said, I, I've, I've really been struggling with alcohol. He said, I'm drinking and closet drinking, and I actually I keep a little flask in my desk drawer at the church. And the second pastor said, man, he said, you know, I, I've, I've been struggling with lust, and, and, and I've been having a really hard time and some things on the computer that I, I'm, just, I'm just struggling with. And the, the third pastor, they looked at him, he was kind of quiet, and they said, well, what, what's your struggle? What sins do you confess? And he said, well, I, I've really been struggling with gossip, and I can't wait to get out of here. <laughs> So we want to be careful with who we confess our sins one to another to. Now, listen, this gets abused, right? And, and we don't confess our sins to anybody but God because you can trust God and God will, um, God will forgive your sins. Now, what this is talking about, we're not throw, I'm not throwing this out. What I'm saying is in wisdom, sometimes you're not going to get better until you confide in somebody. And I think it's true, I think it's secular, but I do believe it's true that sometimes the, the, the best way to a solution to a problem is first to what? Admit you have a problem. Acknowledge you have a problem. And sometimes if you have a brother or sister in life that's an accountability partner, somebody that you can trust, somebody that your secrets are safe with, that it is healthy to confess sins. It is healthy to, to talk and, and admit struggles that people can pray for you and pour into your life. And so when we confess our sins one to another, again, be very careful with that. But there is a healthy and a wise and a smart way to have a brother or sister in your life that it's time to talk to. You know, sometimes I can be that for a brother or sister in the church. You know, if it's a sister, I usually bring my wife and she does it. One of the brothers in church and, and, and sometimes, sometimes guys don't have where to go. So they, they, they want to talk to me. That's okay. But, you know, whether you can trust me or not, I don't know. Maybe I'm that pastor that struggles with gossip, but um, not, not yet. So. But anyways, just, just you find that person. All right. Then it says, um, last part of 16, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Hey, you guys, read that with me. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Who in here is a righteous man? Who's righteous? Really? You guys think that highly of yourselves? Didn't we just talk about humility? Oh, uh, no, honestly, the truth is that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're righteous. You're made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not right just means right standing with God. It doesn't mean right behavior, right actions. You could be a sinner who's struggling, but the blessing is you can all smile. When God looks at you, he only sees Jesus. He's made a choice. He sees his son, and, and, he, and he likes his son, so you're righteous in God's eyes. So that's every one of you. The effective, fervent prayer and I, I'm careful, right? It's not every one of you. It's every one of you who surrendered your life to Jesus. It's every one of you who's born again. You are made righteous, imputed righteous. Jesus has chosen to impute his righteousness 
into your life. So pray that prayer, effective, fervent prayer. So keep asking, keep knocking, and God will answer it. And then I talked about this already. Elijah was a man with nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save the soul and the death and cover a multitude of sins. So Elijah, verse 17, highlight that. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. My Bible says, like passions. Okay? I already talked about it, that he didn't have a mutant gene. Elijah was a man with like passions. Elijah did amazing, amazing things by the hand of God and through the hand of God. Elijah's life was, was, was used in such a radical way. And, and James, again, is giving each one of you invitation to be used by God. You have the same passions. You have the same makeup that Elijah had, and God can use you as much as you want to surrender your heart and life to God. God will take it and meet you where you are. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Oh, Matt's back. I thought Matt left. Okay, come on up, you guys, if you're here. Sorry about that. Hey, Jay and Isla, will you guys come up and uh, pray? Pat and Angie, you guys mind to pray? I'm going to give uh, Pat and Angie the anointing oil and uh, Jay and Allie. And if there's someone among us that's sick, let's be, you know, just in obedience to God's word. Just put a little dot and cross on your forehead and anoint you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And, and just pray and ask God to heal your life. We don't know why and how God heals, but healing is not a formula. I do know this, that God heals today. God is still in the business of healing. Not everybody gets healed. But if everybody got healed every time we prayed and asked God to heal us, we'd all live to be like 700 years old. We'd never die. And that's no good. I don't want that. Don't pray for me to get well. <laughs> I want to go see Jesus. But we, we do. If there's something going on in your life physically, emotionally, and you want prayer, there is a power. There's a call of God's word. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So I encourage you guys always as each Sunday to take advantage of these opportunities to let God touch your heart. It's one song. It's one song for you to worship the Lord and try to connect with him and, and try to ask God. You have not because you ask not. So take one song and encourage the Lord. If you don't know Jesus in your heart as your Lord and Savior, come up and ask Jay or Pat to pray with you to receive Jesus in your heart. Say, I want to just come and tell one of these guys, I want to give my life to Jesus, and they'll lead you in a simple prayer. Amen?